Hello. This is episode two of Celia Reads to Sedona and Rose. So, we have chapter two. Um, This time I don't have my retainer in, so I think it'll be better. Chapter two. Oh no. Dad interrupted me. Hold on. Okay. Chapter two. The idea of North. Lord Asriel, said the master heavily, and came forward to shake his hand. From her hiding place, Lyra watched the master's eyes, and indeed, they flicked towards the table for a second, where the Tokai had been. Master, said Lord Asriel, I came too late to disturb your dinner, so I made myself at home in here. Hello, Subrector. Glad to see you looking so well. Excuse my rough appearance. I've only just landed. Yes, master. The Tokai's gone. I think you're standing in it. The porter knocked it off the table, but it wasn't but it was my fault. Hello, chaplain. I read your latest paper with great interest. He moved away with the chaplain, leaving Lyra with a clear view of the master's face. It was impassive, but the demon on his shoulder was shuffling her feathers and moving restlessly from foot to foot. Lord Asriel was already dominating the room, and although he was careful to be courteous to the master in the master's own territory. It was clear where the power lay. The scholars greeted the visitor and moved into the room. Some sitting around the table summoned the armchairs, and soon a buzz of conversation filled the air. Lyra could see that they were powerfully intrigued by the wooden case, the screen, and the lantern. She knew the scholars well. The librarian, the subrector, the inquirer, and the rest. They were men who had been around her all her life, taught her, chastised her, consoled her, given her little presents, chased her away from the fruit trees in the garden. They were all the they were all she had for family. They might even have felt like family if she knew what a family was. Though if she did, she'd have been more likely to feel that about the college servants. The scholars had more important things to do than attend to the affections of a half-wild, half-civilized girl, left among them by chance. The master lit the spirit lamp under the little silver chafing dish and heated some butter before cutting half a dozen poppy heads open and tossing them in. Poppy was also served after a feast. It clarified the mind and stimulated the tongue and made for rich conversation. It was traditional for the master to cook it himself. Under the sizzle of the frying butter and the hum of talk, Lyra shifted around to find a more comfortable position for herself. With uh, with enormous care, she took one of the ropes, a full-length fur, off its hanger and lay it on the floor of the wardrobe. You should have used a scratchy old one, whispered Pantalaimon. Now if you... If you get too comfortable, you'll go to sleep. If I do, it's your job to wake me up, she replied. 
She sat and listened to the talk. Mighty dull talk it was, too. Almost all of it politics and London politics at that. Nothing exciting about Tartars. The smell of frying poppy and smoke leaf drifted pleasantly in through the wardrobe door, and more than once Lyra found herself nodding. But finally she heard someone rap on the table. The voices fell silent, and then the master spoke. Gentlemen, he said, I feel sure I speak for all of us when I bid Lord Asriel welcome. His guests, his visits are rare, but always immensely valuable. And I understand he has something of particular interest to show us tonight. This is a time of high political tension, as we are all aware. Lord Asriel's presence is required early tomorrow morning in the White Hall, and a train is waiting with steam up ready to carry him to London as soon as we have finished our conversation here. So we must use our time wisely. When he has finished speaking to us, I imagine there will be some questions. Please keep them brief and to the point. Lord Asriel, would you like to begin? Thank you, Master, said Lord Asriel. To start with, I have a few slides to show you. Subrector, you can see best from here, I think. Perhaps the Master would like to take the chair near the wardrobe. Lyra marveled at her uncle's skill. The old subrector was nearly blind, so it was courteous to make room for him near to the screen, and his moving forward meant that the master would be sitting next to the librarian, only a matter of a yard or so from where Lyra was crouched in the wardrobe. As the master settled in the armchair, Lyra heard him, mur him murmur, The devil! He knew about the wine, I'm sure of it. The librarian murmured back, He's going to ask for funds if he forces a vote. If he does that, we must argue against it with all the eloquence we have. The lantern began to hiss as Lord Asriel pumped it hard. Lyra moved slightly so that she could see the screen, where a brilliant white circle had begun to glow. Lord Asriel called, Could someone turn the lamp down? One of the scholars got up to do that, and the room darkened. Lord Asriel began, As some of you know, I set out for the north, twelve months ago, on a diplomatic mission to the King of Lapland. At least, that's what I pretended to be doing. In fact, my real aim was to go further north still, right onto the ice, in fact, to try and discover what had happened to the Grumman expedition. One of Grumman's last messages to the Academy in Berlin spoke of a certain natural phenom phenomenon only seen in the lands of the north. I was determined to investigate that as well, as find out what I could about Grumman. But the first picture I'm going to show you isn't directly about either of those things. And he put the first slide into the frame and slid, behind, slid it behind the lens. A circular photogram in sharp black and white appeared on the screen. It had been taken at night under a full moon, and it showed a wooden hut in the middle distance, its walls dark against the snow that surrounded it and lay thickly on the roof. Beside the hut stood an array of philosophical instruments, which looked to Lyra's eye like something from the Enbaric Park on the road to Yarnton. Aerials, wires, porcelain insulators, all glittering in the moonlight and thickly covered in frost. A man in furs, his face hardly visible in the deep hood of his garment, stood in the foreground, with his hand raised as if in greeting. To one side of him stood a smaller figure, 
The moonlight bathed everything in the same pallid gleam. That photogram was taken with a standard silver nitrate emulsion, Lord Asriel said. I'd like you to look at another one, taken from the same spot only a minute later, with a new, specially prepared emulsion. He lifted out the first slide and dropped another into the frame. This was much darker. It was as if the moonlight had been filtered out. The horizon was still visible, with the dark shape of the hut and its light, snow-covered roof standing out, but the complexity of the instruments was hidden in darkness. But the man had altogether changed. He was bathed in, in light, and a fountain of glowing particles seemed to be streaming from his upraised hand. That light, said the chaplain, is it going up or coming down? It's coming down, said Lord Asriel, but it isn't light. It's dust. Something in the way he said it made Lyra imagine dust with a capital letter, as if this wasn't ordinary dust. The reaction of the scholars confirmed her feeling, because Lord Asriel's words caused a sudden collective silence, followed by gasps of incredulity incredulity but how surely it can't gentlemen came the voice of the chaplain let lord asriel explain it's dust lord asriel repeated it's registered as light on the plate because particles of dust affect this emulsion as photons affect silver nitrate emulsion it was partly to test um it was partly to test it that my expedition went north in the first place as you see, the figure of the man is perfectly visible. Now I'd like you to look at the shape to his left. He indicated the blurred shape of the smaller figure. I thought that was the man's demon, said the inquirer. No, his demon was at the time coiled around his neck in the form of a snake. That shape you can see dimly is a child. A severed child? said someone, and the way he stopped showed that he knew this was something that shouldn't have been voiced. There was intense silence. Then Lord Asriel said calmly, An entire child, which, given the nature of dust, is precisely the point, is it not? No one spoke for several seconds. Then came the voice of the chaplain. Ah, he said like a thirsty man, having just drunk deeply, puts down a glass to let out the breath he has held while drinking. And the streams of dust coming from the sky come from the sky and bathe him in what looks like light. You may examine this picture as closely as you wish. I'll leave it behind when I go. I'm showing it to you now to demonstrate the effect of this new emulsion. Now I'd like to show you another picture. He changed the slide. The next picture was also taken at night, but this time without moonlight. It showed a small group of tents in the foreground, dimly outlined against the low horizon, and beside them an untidy heap of wooden boxes and a sledge. But the main interest of the picture lay in the sky. Streams and veils of light hung like curtains, looped and festooned on invisible hooks hundreds of miles high or blowing out sideways in the stream of some unimaginable wind. What is that? said the voice of the subrector. It's a picture of the aurora. It's a very fine photogram, said the Palmerian professor, one of the best I've seen. Forgive my ignorance, said the shaky wait, I should say that in a shaky voice. Forgive my ignorance, said the shaky voice of the old presenter. But if I ever knew what the aurora was, I have forgotten. 
Is it what they call the Northern Lights? Yes, it has many names. It's composed of storms, of, cha of charged particles, and solar rays of intense and extraordinary strength. Invisible in themselves, but causing this luminous radiation when they interact with the atmosphere. If there had been time, I would have had this slide tinted to show you the colors. Pale green and rose, for the most part, with a tinge of crimson along the lower edge of that curtain-like formation. This is taken with ordinary emulsion. Now I'd like now I'd like you to look at a picture taken with the special emulsion. He took out the slide. Lyra heard the master say quietly, If he forces a vote, we could try to invoke the resistance clause. Or, sorry, the residence clause. He hasn't been resident in the college for 32 weeks out of the last 52. He's already got the chaplain on his side, the librarian murmured in, re in reply. Lord Asriel put a new slide in the lantern frame. It showed the same scene as with the previous pair of pictures. Many of the features visible by ordinary light were, were much dimmer in this one, and so were the curtains of radiance in the sky. But in the middle of the aurora, high above the bleak landscape, Lyra could see something solid. She pressed her face to the crack to see more clearly, and she could see the scholars near the screen leaning forward too. As she gazed, her wonder grew, because there in the sky was the unmistakable outline of the city. Towers, domes, walls, buildings, and streets suspended in the air? She nearly gasped with, want with wonder. The Castington scholar said, That looks like a city. Exactly so, said Lord Asriel. A city in another world, no doubt, said the dean, with contempt in his voice. Lord Asriel ignored him. There was a, sur a stir of excitement among some of the scholars, as if having written treatises on the existence of the unicorn without ever having seen one. They'd been presented with a living example, newly captured. Is this the Barnard Stroke, uh, Stokes business? said the Palmerian profe professor. It is, isn't it? That's what I want to find out, said Lord Asriel. He stood to one side of the illuminated screen. Lyra could see his dark eyes searching among the scholars as they peered up at the slide of the aurora and the green glow of his demon's eyes beside him. All the venerable heads were craning forward, their spectacles glinting. Only the master and the librarian leaned back in their chairs with their heads close together. The chaplain was saying, You said you were searching... For the news of the Grumman expedition, Lord Asriel, was Dr. Grumman investigating this phenomenon too? I believe he was, and I believe he had a good deal of information about it, but he won't be able to tell us what it was, because he's dead. No, said the chaplain. I'm afraid so, and I have proof here. A ripple of excited apprehension ran around the retiring room, as under Lord Asriel's direction, two or three of the younger scholars carried the wooden box to the front of the room. Lord Asriel took, uh, took out the last slide but left the lantern on, and in the dramatic glare of the circle of light, he bent to lever open the box. Lyra heard the screech of nails coming out of damp wood. The master stood up to look, blocking Lyra's view. Her uncle spoke again. If you remember, Grumman's expedition vanished 18 months ago. The German academy sent him up there to go as far north as north as the magnetic pole and take various celestial ob observations. It was in the course of that journey that he observed the curious phenomenon we've already seen. 
Shortly after that, he vanished. It's been assumed that he had an accident, and that his body's been lying at crevice for all this time. In fact, there was no accident. What have you got there? said the dean. Is that a vacuum container? Lord Asriel didn't answer at first. Lyra heard the snap of metal clips and a hiss as air rushed into a vessel, and then there was silence. But the silence didn't last long. After a moment or two, Lyra heard confused babble break out, cries of horror, loud protests, voices raised in anger and fear. But what? Hardly human. It's been... What's been... What's happened to it? The master's voice cut through them all. Lord Asriel, what in God's name have you got there? This is the head of uh, Stanislaw Grumman, said Lord Asriel's voice. Over the jumble of voices, Lyra heard someone stumble to the door and out, making inco incoherent sounds of distress. She wished she could see what they were seeing. Lord Asriel said, I found his body preserved in the ice off Svalbard. The head was treated in this way by his killers. You'll notice the characteristic scalping pattern. I think you might be familiar with it, Subrector. The old man's voice was steady as he said, I have seen the Tartars do this. It's a technique you find among the aboriginals of Siberia and the Tungusk. From there, of course, it spread into the lands of the Skralings, though I understand that it is now banned in New Denmark. May I examine it more closely, Lord Asriel? After a short silence, he spoke again. My eyes are not very clear, and the ice is dirty, but it seems to me that there is a hole in the top of the skull. Am I right? You are. Trepanning? Exactly. That caused a murmur of excitement. The master moved out of the way, and Lyra could see again. The old subrector in the circle of light thrown by the lantern was holding a heavy block of ice up close to his eyes, and Lyra could see the object inside it, a bloody lump, barely recognizable as a human head. Pantalaimon fluttered around Lyra, his distress affecting her. Hush, she whispered, listen. Dr. Grumman was once a scholar of this college, said the dean hotly, to fall into the hands of the Tartars, but that far north? They must have penetrated further than anyone imagined. Did they hear you say you found it near Svalbard? said the dean. That's right. Are, are we to understand the... Jesus, what is this word? Panzer Bjorn had anything to do with this? Lyra didn't recognize that word, but clearly the scholars did. Impossible, said the Cassington scholar firmly. They'd never behave in that manner. When you don't, then you don't know Ephor Rackneson, said the Palmerian professor, who had made several expeditions himself to the Arctic regions. It wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that he had taken to scalping people in the Tartar fashion. Lyra looked again at her uncle, who was watching the scholars with a glitter of sardonic amusement and saying nothing. Who is Ephor Rackneson? Rackneson, said someone. The king of Svalbard, said the Palmerian professor. Yes. That's right. One of the... Gosh, I don't remember how to say this word. Y'all, give me a minute. I'm going to figure this out. Okay, I think it's... Panzerbjörn. Who's your for, your for rag, 
Magnuson, said someone. The King of Svalbard, said the Palmerian professor. Yes, that's right, one of the pants of yarn. He's a usurper. Usurper. Usurper of sorts. Tricked his way onto the throne, or so I understand. But a powerful figure, by no means a fool, in spite of his ludicrous affections, having a palace built of imported marble, setting up what he calls a university. For whom? For the bears? said someone else, and everyone laughed. But the Palmerian professor went on. For all that, I tell you that your fur Ragnason would be able would be capable of doing this to Grumman. At the same time, he could, he could be flattered into behaving quite differently if the need arose. And you know how, do you, Trelawney? said the dean sneeringly. Indeed I do. Do you know what he wants above all else, even more than an honorary degree? He wants a demon. Find a way to give him a demon and he'd do anything for you. The scholars laughed heartily. Lyra was following this with puzzlement. What the Palmyrian professor had said had made no sense at all. Besides, she was impatient to hear more about scalping and the northern lights and that mysterious dust. But she was disappointed, for Lord Asriel had finished showing his relics and pictures, and the talk soon turned into a college wrangle about whether or not they should give him some money to fit out another expedition. Back and forth the arguments ranged, and Lyra felt her eyes closing. Soon she was fast asleep, with Pantalaimon curled around her neck in his favorite sleeping form as an ermine. She woke up with a start, then someone shook her shoulder. Quiet, said her uncle. The wardrobe door was open, and he was crouched there against the light. They've all gone, but there are still some servants around. Go to your bedroom now, and take care that you say nothing about this. Did they vote to give you the money? She said sheepily, sleepily. Yes. What's dust? She said, struggling to stand up after having been cramped for so long. Nothing to do with you. It is to do with me, she said. If you wanted me to be a spy in the wardrobe, you would ought to tell me what I'm spying about. Can I see the man's head? Pantalimon's white ermine fur bristled. She felt it tickling her neck. Lord Asriel laughed shortly. Don't be disgusting, he said, and began to pack his slides and, and specimen box. Did you watch the master? Yes, and he looked for the wine before he did anything else. Good, but I've scotched him for now. Do as you're told and go to bed. But where are you going? Back to the north. I'm leaving in ten minutes. Can I come? He stopped what he was doing and looked at her for the first time. His demon turned her great tawny leopard eyes on her too, and under the concentrated gaze of both of them, Lyra blushed, but she gazed back fiercely. Your place is here, said her uncle finally. But why? Why is my place here? Why can't I come to the north with you? I want to see the northern lights and bears and icebergs and everything. I want to know about dust. And the city in the air? Is it another world? You're not coming, child. Put it out of your head. The times are too dangerous. Do as you're told and go to bed. And if you're a good girl, I'll bring you back a walrus tux, tusk or some Eskimo carving on it. I'll bring you back a walrus tusk with some Eskimo carving on it. Don't argue anymore or I shall be angry. And his demon growled with a deep, savage rumble that made Lyra suddenly aware of what it would be like to have teeth meeting in her throat. She compressed her lips and frowned hard at her uncle. 
He was pumping the air from the vacuum flask and took no notice. It was as if he'd already forgotten her. Without a word, but with tight lips and eyes narrowed, the girl and her demon left and went to bed. The master and the librarian were old friends and allies, and it was their habit, after a difficult episode, to take a glass of Brantwin and console each other. So after they'd seen Lord Asriel away, they strolled to the master's lodging and settled in his study with the curtains drawn and the fire refreshed, their demons in the familiar places on knee or shoulder, and prepared to think through what had just happened. Do you really believe he knew about the wine? said the librarian. Of course he did. I have no idea how, but he knew. And he spilled the decanter himself. Of course he did. Forgive me, master, but I can't help being relieved. I was never ha happy about the idea of... Of poisoning him? Yes, of murder. Hardly anyone would be happy at that idea, Charles. The question was whether doing that would be worse than the con consequences of not doing it at all. Well, some providence has intervened, and it hasn't happened. I'm only sorry I burdened, I burdened you with the knowledge of it. No, no, protested the librarian, but I wish you had told me more. The master was silent for a while before saying, Yes, perhaps I should have done. The alethiometer warns of appalling consequence, consequences if Lord Asriel pursues his research. Apart from anything else, the child will be drawn in and I want to keep her safe as long as possible. Is Lord Asriel's business anything to do with this new initiative of the, of the Consistorial Court of Discipline? The what do they call it? The Oblation Board? Lord Asriel, no, no. Quite the reverse. The Oblation Board isn't entirely answerable to the Consistorial co Court, either. It's a sem semi-private initiative. It's been run by someone who is no love of Lord Asriel. Between them both, Charles, I tremble. The librarian was silent in his turn. Ever since Pope John Kelvin had moved to the seat of the papacy to Geneva and set up the consistorial court of discipline, the church's power over every aspect of life had been absolute. The papacy, I don't know if that's right, but that's what I'm going with, itself had been abolished after Calvin's death, and a tangle of courts, colleges, and councils, collectively known as the Magisterium, had grown up in its place. These agencies were not always united. Sometimes a bitter rivalry grew up between them. For a large part of the previous century, the most powerful had been the College of Bishops, but in recent years, the Consistorial Court of Discipline had taken its place um, as the most active and now the most feared of all the church's bodies. But it was always possible for ind independent agencies to grow up under the protection of another part of the magisterium, and the oblo oblation board, which the librarian had referred to, was one of these. The librarian didn't know much about it, but he disliked and feared what he'd heard, and he completely understood the master's anxiety. The Palmyrian professor mentioned a name, he said after a minute so, um, Barnard Stokes? What is the Barnard Stokes business? Ah, uh, it's not our field, Charles. As I understand it, the Holy Church teaches that there are two worlds. The world of everything we can see and hear and touch. And another world, the spiritual world of heaven and hell. Barnard and Stokes were two, how shall I put it, renegade theologians 
who postulated the existence of numerous other worlds, like this one, neither heaven nor hell, but material and sinful. They are, they are there, close by, but invisible and unreachable. The Holy Church naturally disapproved of this abominable heresy, and Barnard and Stokes were silenced. But unfortunately, unfortunately for the magisterium, there seems to be sound mathematical arguments for this other world theory. I have never followed them myself, but the Cassington scholar tells me that they are sound. And now Lord Asriel has taken a picture of one of these other worlds, the librarian said, and we have funded him to go and look for it, I see. Quite. It'll seem that the Oblation Board, and to its powerful protectors, protectors that Jordan College is a hotbed of support for heresy. In between the consistorial court and the oblation board, Charles, I have to keep a balance, and meanwhile the child is growing. They won't have forgotten her. Sooner or later she would have be, uh, become involved, but she'll be drawn in now whether I want to protect her or not. But how do you know that, for God's sake? The alethiometer again? Yes, Lyra has a part to play in all of this, and a major one. The irony is that she must do it all without realizing that she's what she's doing. And she can be help she can be helped though, and if my plan with the Tokai has succeeded, she would have been safe for a little longer. I would have liked to spare her a journey to the north. I wish above all things that I were able to explain it to her. She wouldn't listen, said the librarian. I know her ways only too well tried to tell her anything serious and she'll half listen for five minutes and then start fidgeting quiz her about it next time and she'll have completely forgotten if i talk to her about dust you don't think she'd listen to that the librarian made a noise to indicate indicate how unlikely he thought that was why on earth should she he said why should a distant theolo theological riddle interest a healthy thoughtless child because of what she must experience Part of her, uh, part of that includes a great betrayal. Who's going to betray her? No, no, that's the saddest thing. She will be the betrayer, and the experience will be terrible. She mustn't know that, of course, but there's no reason for her not to know about the problem of dust. And you might be wrong, Charles. She might, uh, she might well take interest in it, if it were explained in a simple way. And it might help her later on. It would certainly help me to be less anxious about her. That's the duty of the old, said the librarian, to be anxious on behalf of the young. And the duty of the young is to scorn the anxiety of the old. They sat for a while longer and then parted, for it was late, and they were old and anxious. Okay. Um. That was the next book. Not not next book. Next chapter. I'm on my porch. Um, I'm very excited to hear Harry Potter. Uh, yeah. I hope you enjoy this. That's all.